On this World Communion Sunday, we continue the sermon series that Bill began of imagined scarcity, abundant reality. World Communion Sunday commemorates the common table all followers of Jesus share regardless of denominational affiliation. Before anything else, the church belongs to Christ, as does this his table to which he invites us. Today, we remember this abundant reality in a world where faith seems scarce and divisions all too prevalent. In solidarity with other churches, our scripture lesson for today comes from the Revised Common Lectionary, a series of readings prescribed from scripture that follow, that's followed by many of the largest denominations. Today, Episcopalians, Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Methodists, and many others will hear this passage reminding us that we are one of word and sacrament. Early in Christian history, St. Jerome began a tradition of calling the book of Isaiah the fifth gospel in that Christians so often interpret his prophecy as foretelling the arrival of our Messiah, the Christ. And we hear echoes of Isaiah's prophecy throughout our gospels. But to only consider those passages we read in Advent or hear in Handel's Messiah ignores the breadth of what Isaiah uttered on behalf of God more than 3,000 years ago. In the 8th century before the Common Era, an import-export trade fueled economic growth in the ancient Near East, particularly for those who already possessed land and wealth. An ability to export olive oil, wine, and wheat lured producers to acquire more lands for their production and consequent sale. It was the very basic economics that we follow today. These commercial farms acquired adjacent lands from peasants who existed by working only small plots that they needed to sustain their families. And when I say acquired, these lands were taken as a result of the government levying onerous taxes, which the yield from these small family plots could not fund. Homelessness rose as families became displaced, economic justice in group grew. So one question is, was it legal to obtain land these ways? The government allowed it. And this is when Isaiah writes, asking, but what about in God's eyes? Before we hear Isaiah's parable, please pray with me. Dear God, quiet in us the noise of today the news, the debates, the infection rates, the market, the Zooms, quiet all of that so that we can turn our complete attention to your word. Startle us again with the truth contained in this parable just as our ancestors were so that we can learn to lift our voices and to live our lives as love songs to you. Bless this reading and the meditation of all of our hearts. Amen. I invite you to listen for God's word as I read from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 8. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning the vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine press in it. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and people of Judea, judge between me and my vineyard. 
What more was there to do for my vineyard that I had not done? When I expected it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do with my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled. I will make it a wild field and it shall not be pruned or hoed and it shall be overgrown with briars and thorns. And I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the people of Judea are his pleasant plantings. He hoped for justice and he saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but look instead, wretchedness. Oh, and you who join house to house, who add field to field, until there is no room for one but you, you are left to live alone in the midst of the land. Here ends our reading. Now Jesus told very obscure parables that the disciples didn't understand at the time and we still wrestle with today. Parables in Hebrew scripture though rarely exist. So just by their scarcity, we notice them and they also bite with clarity. Rhetorical traps are masterfully set which the hearers unwittingly convict themselves when they hear them. Ancient prophets are not soothsayers, but function as the conscience of God speaking to leaders and to the people. The parable we heard today began as a serenade to the beloved. Imagine a lovely ballad, either on harp or on the piano, that then all of a sudden descends into discord of a minor key. Can you hear the angry tones as if played on piano and organ just vibrating within? Israel had made a mockery of the covenant established by God and Abraham. In that covenant, God's love for the people cultivated over time a lush vineyard in which safety and substance for all God's people was provided for everyone to flourish in this earthly realm. That was God's fulfillment of God's promise to us and we slipped away. To that end, Isaiah creates an image of God in very personal terms, not high on a lofty hill, but one who labored, who got his fingers dirty in the ground. And yet, rather than the vineyard producing grapes, wild grapes emerged. The translation of wild grapes from Hebrew into English could more correctly be sour or rotten grapes, anything that's inedible for humans. And the wordplay within Isaiah's explanation of the parable stings. In the ancient Hebrew language, by merely changing one consonant, God's desire for justice, one consonant change, justice becomes bloodshed. And rather than be obedient to God's call for righteousness, the people returned wretchedness. Although these accusations sound as they're, though they're coming from a judicial lawyer, Isaiah's prophecy functions actually as a marriage counselor. You see, condemnation is not the goal. God wants a loving, mutual relationship. And as biblical scholar David Carr reminds us, I quote, this picture of God in love within an entire people is unique amongst world religions. And it testifies to the importance of a passion for God and it critiques any ultimate attachment to something other than God. 
Thriving vineyards, no less than marriages, rely not so much upon rules as compared to tender cultivation and the patient, though passionate, wooing of a lover. Isaiah wants the people to know that God sees what they're doing, taking lands for themselves, displacing peasants through corrupt means, turning away from loving God to instead loving prophets. And the consequences of the wealthy's injustice towards their peasant neighbors will result in the downfall of an entire community, including them. You see, they behave as if it's a zero-sum game in which blessings are scarce and the only way for one person to thrive is at the expense of another. We live in a world in which so many aspects of our lives appear to be played as a zero-sum game. And quite simply, a zero-sum game is whatever is at stake exists in a fixed amount. The only way for you to have more means I have less, or for me to have more means you have less. 3,000 years ago, the Israelites lived as though this were the case, and we too continue to fall prey to such fears. Last month marked the 50-year anniversary of Milton Friedman's iconic New York Times essay entitled, The Social Responsibility is to Increase Its Profits, in which he stated very succinctly over and over again, the business of business is always business, fueling a laser focus on shareholder value, full stop. Generating profits reigns superior over and against the cultivation of employees, the community, the competitors, suppliers, you can only justify investing in other constituents if accelerates profits. He also states that expenditures to eliminate pollution should be to the minimum requirement of the law and no more, regardless of what else might be done, because it's not about what you think, it's about what you return to the shareholders. This Milton doctrine, as so it became known, to cautioned leaders away from leveraging their time and presence to personal causes, which for some then justified the erosion of moral character and generosity from public corporations because the business of business is only ever business. The culture in some institutions also seems to rest on the practice that not only do I need to perform well for my career to advance, but I need to make sure that you don't look as though you're performing well. Ouch. It seems as though even for some, professional growth is a zero-sum game. Now, that's not true of all enterprises. We all know that. But we also know that there are many amongst us who are nodding their heads in agreement because they have personally experienced it in their own lives. The mentality of a zero-sum game has also led to significant swaths in our country's population to believe that broadening access to fair trials, equity before the law, freedom of movement from one area to another, and access to education will diminish their lives. If freedom and justice expand, too many think they might lose. And yet, justice and freedom become scarce only by our actions. In this past week, we began a class entitled Exploring Isaiah, in which we're going to look through this ancient prophecy in the obscure text, and one of the people in the question asked, and asked, why does Isaiah receive such prominence over the other prophetic texts? Because Isaiah is certainly not the only one, but Isaiah is the one we refer to over and over again. And that was true particularly before the birth of Christ, and yet today for many people that don't even think about Christ as their personal savior. 
One answer might be that when the prophesied destruction of Israel sent the people into Babylonian exile, they remembered Isaiah's truth. When Isaiah, when Israel fell, the exile included everyone, rich and poor, righteous and just, unjust. Over the long years of exile, they realized injustice tears not only at the lives of those who are denied justice, but into the lives of those who ignored injustice and hoarded more than their share. In contrast to such a narrowly conceived mission for business, we need only to turn to a recent article from the Wall Street Journal, their profile of Maggie Lena Walker, who became the first black woman to ever run a bank, and this was back in the late 1800s. Walker's mother was an illiterate enslaved teenager when she was born, who most likely conceived Walker while raped by a Confederate soldier. After graduating from high school, Walker helped her mother as a washerwoman and soon joined what was called the Order of St. Luke in Richmond, Virginia, that provided financial services to black people after the Civil War. Walker also called for St. Luke to expand, creating a department store and a newspaper as well as a bank to uplift all black women. Her vision became, I quote, let us put our monies together, let us use our monies, and let us put our monies out there. Let us have a bank that will take in nickels and return dollars. Now, few companies launched into more hostile seas than this one. Following the war, white banks refused to lend to black borrowers, so Congress created the Freedmen's Savings and Trust Company to serve formerly enslaved black people. And I quote the journal's essay, the corrupt and incompetent white managers ran it into the ground. Now, after Friedman's demise, most depositors claimed no more than 60% and most lost everything. And for decades and decades, black people in areas where Friedman's had operated distrusted all banks, making Walker's cause even more challenging. In addition to that, there was white opposition that Walker called, I quote, the lion of prejudice, and that threw obstacle after obstacle in their way. When she'd moved the department store into Richmond's business district, white store owners boycotted any merchant that sold to them. A landlord of an adjacent property converted his property into a saloon, attracting dangerous clientele on purpose. But as the journal wrote, nothing stopped her. At the time, most mortgages required a 40% down payment and full payment within five years. She accepted as little as 10% down and allowed borrowers to refinance as needed. Due to St. Luke's efficient management, black ownership of homes in Richmond was the highest in the country at 40%. The accolades go on of employing black women, treating employees with generosity, and serving with respect. On Walker's deathbed in 1934, her last words were, have faith, have hope, have courage, and carry on. Now the journal adorned this article with a large portrait of Walker in which she wore just at the very center a simple cross that was large, drawing your absolute attention to that before you noticed her somber attire and very steely look. 
Jesus continues to sing the love song begun by God so long ago. In the Gospel of John, Jesus proclaims, I am the true vine and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That was Jesus's love song. To talk only of God's love and grace revealed in Jesus Christ, the nice part of Jesus's gift, without acknowledging the fellowship it created amongst rivals, including those on the margins and his passion for justice, to speak only of love and grace without embracing our responsibility to pursue justice for everyone as he modeled. To speak only of love and grace and without that justice makes a mockery of this table, his life, his death, and his resurrection. A question before us remains, are we living with generosity towards everyone, ensuring our industry is above reproach and the way we move in the world respects the vulnerable and that our legacy will be one of striving for a goal never measured only in earnings per share? A question before us, do we approach the table to which Jesus invites us knowing full well that it's crowded with those that we do not like or are not of a common mind about masks, presidential candidates, or racism. And yet, everyone is there. Most importantly, that's where our Savior is. On the cross of Christ once and for all, and for all eyes to see, the heart of God is laid bare, teaching us that we are called to obey God's love. God does not play a zero-sum game with covenants as if divine blessings were a scarce commodity, but Love is lavished year over year, person after person. And by hearing the love song that God sings, we are invited to join our voice, singing loudly and in harmony for all to hear. May it be so, my friends. May it be so.